Well, I think we're living in a very interesting time in Australia right at the moment, in light of the surprise result of the federal election.、Um, a number of commentators have suggested that、um, the voting patterns of people of faith was one of the factors that influenced the outcome. Now, we shouldn't overplay this; it, it was just one of many factors. But I think that it is accurate to say that it, it was a factor, and it's certainly out there in, in the media over this past week.、Uh, in Western Sydney, for example, a number of、uh, newspaper articles have drawn attention to the fact、uh, that the swing against the Labor Party was in line with the percentage of people of faith in Western Sydney, and, and that's all faith—not just Christians, but Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, and Christians across Western Sydney. In those electorates with the highest percentage of religious people,、uh, was also the, the places where there was a three, four, five percent. Swing against the Labor Party. One of the outcomes of this is that both sides of politics are more willing to listen to people of faith at the moment. I've heard more Labor politicians and Liberal politicians talking about people of faith in the last week,、um, and. And you might be wondering, what should we do at this point? What does God want us to do at this point in time?、Uh, is this the moment where we ought to double down and press our political advantage and forever take advantage of of this moment to protect our religious freedom rights forever? And, and as、uh, Stu has alluded, that's been one of my roles is to talk about the issues of religious freedom over the last little while.、Um, As I've been reflecting on it this week, I don't think that that's what God wants us as a do to do right at this moment in time.、Um, not to say that that's a bad thing to do, but what God wants His people to do is to be His people in the world. Our passage from Romans 12 suggests a very different way forward, a different long-term strategy for Christians to engage with the non-Christian culture or the post-Christian culture around us. In short, what God wants us to do is to live lives of love, radical, countercultural love, extravagant love, cross-shaped love. Today we're looking at the last part of Romans chapter 12, starting at verse 9. But I'm really pleased that Stu started the service by quoting from verses 1 and 2 as the introduction to the service, because、uh, those verses are critical. They remind us that the love that's described there in the second part of the passage is a response to God's love for us. It is in verse 1, in view of God's mercy, that. We do this thing that we, we we live a life of love because God first loved us. That the previous eleven chapters of Romans, and no, don't worry, I'm not going to do all of them today. But they sketch out what God's love looks like.、Uh, Romans five verse eight: God demonstrates His own love for us in this: while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God's love is an undeserved love. It's forgiveness. It's love at great cost. It's extravagant love. It's it's love that results in. Enemies being reconciled almost in spite of themselves, and that's kind of that, that's the message of Romans one to eleven at a kind of cosmic level. And then Romans twelve is saying, "Yeah, and the way that God loved you, that's how you should love the people around you." It is because, and only because, we have already experienced a love like that that we can and we should love others. That kind of love is a love that can't help but be noticed. 
the Apostle Peter says, live such good lives among the pagans that they will see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. At the end of the second century, at a time when Christians were beginning to be persecuted, in, in, uh, they've certainly been scorned for their faith uh, for quite some time, but it kind of got particularly bad around the end of the second century, a Christian, named, a Christian named Tertullian wrote to the Roman authorities a book called his Apology, Apologia, and it provided a defence for Christianity. And one of his key defences for the Christian faith was... Even the pagans say of the Christians, see how they love one another. Even though the pagans were still scorning the Christians for it, they couldn't help themselves but to say, see how they love. That is what we need to do at this moment in time. That is how we should be engaging with our world. That is the radically countercultural thing for us to be doing as, as Christians in our society at the moment. Our churches need to be full of authentic love. I'm delighted that the two interviews before the service both, and, and this, wasn't, this wasn't a setup. I didn't even know that that was happening, but both of the people being interviewed said that that was the thing that marked out this community and I want to say well done and keep it up. What does authentic love look like? Well, Paul sketches it out for us in verses uh, 9 through 16 and he picks on five dimensions of love. Let me run you through them pretty quickly. First of all, genuine love. Verse 9, love must be sincere. Uh, the Greek word that's translated sincere is anhypokritos. Hear the word hypocrisy in there? Uh, anhypokritos means without hypocrisy. In, in ancient Greek, the hypocrites was the actor on the stage. That is, someone who put on a mask, someone who pretended to be someone that they were not. Now, on the stage, that's okay, that's kind of how it's meant to work. But the point is that what is appropriate for the actor on a stage who is only playing a part is not okay for real relationships. What are our church relationships like? Are they genuinely loving or are we just putting on a mask? Are we just playing a role? Are we just coming here for an hour and a quarter on a Sunday morning and pretending to love one another? Or is, is that actually the reality of our communal life together across the week in and out of each other's homes? I think that sometimes we are good at acting, hiding behind a mask. But of course, when you put on a mask and pretend to love, the mask actually obscures yourself and people can't even get to know what you are like on the inside. Putting on masks limits our capacity to love one another both ways. Notice that a genuine love is a discerning love. Verse 9 goes on to say, immediately after it says love should be sincere, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Did that word hate strike you as it was being read earlier? Discerning love must hate evil at the same time. Uh, let, let's make sure we take this idea on board because that's not how people think of love in the world around us. Uh, what we hear is, if you love me, then you mustn't guilt trip me, you mustn't force your values on me. Whatever you do, you mustn't say that God disapproves of what I do. That's not loving. This 
verse reminds us that true love doesn't demand blind acceptance. It's because and precisely because we do love people that we want what is best for them. And sometimes it's not what is best for people to let them remain oblivious to the evil that has ensnared them. The second dimension to love is that it is selfless. Verse 10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honour one another above yourselves. Now, human beings are very good at looking after ourselves, looking after our own best interest. What genuine love looks like is selfless love. Greek, the Greek word here is Philadelphia, a word normally used for the natural bonds of affection between family members, literally brotherly love. But Paul is making the point that now that we are in Christ, we are really part of God's heavenly Father. If I am a loved and adopted child of God and you are too, well, guess what? We are all in the same family together. And therefore, uh, we ought to have those bonds of brotherly and sisterly affection that you do naturally have in human families. And that means being devoted to one another, honouring others above yourself. Again, much more I could say here, but let me move quickly. The third dimension to love is that it's a persevering love. It's not just a love that gives up, that can, can just be flash in the pan love, love for a little, line, a love for a little time. Paul says in verse 11, Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervour serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. The fact that Paul has to remind us to keep our spiritual fervour up means that it is certainly possible for a Christian to sometimes lose that, to be lacking in zeal. And I, I, I suspect that all of us know what that feels like. We don't always want to love and serve one another with undiminished fervour and vitality every day. We know we should do that, but sometimes we don't. How, how do we change that mindset? How, how do we keep our fervour serving the Lord? Well, it's tied to hope. Look at verse 12. It's about being joyful in hope. It, hope is, is looking ahead, to knowing what God has in store, knowing the future that God has called us to. It, it's it, with our eyes on the future that we can actually live the way God wants us to live in the present. The fourth dimension to love is that it is generous. Verses 13 to 15 describe different facets of what generous love looks like. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Just kind of tick those off in your mind and say, is that, is that what I am like? Is, is that what our church is like? Sharing, hospitality, blessing. Uh, uh, weeping with those who weep. The common idea that links all of those things together is that real love shows itself when we give people what they don't earn from us. Whether it's sharing with the poor or giving to those in need or sharing with the stranger by, protect, by, by hospitality or giving a blessing instead of a cursing, all of those things are, are, are demonstrating a generous kind of love that gives people what they haven't earned, which of course is exactly the nature of God's love towards us. The whole definition of God's gracious love, his mercy, is to give us what we do not deserve. And if God has loved us like that, that's how we love one another. 
The fifth and final dimension in this list of, of, of real love is humility. Verse 16, live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. When we sing in church, uh, I love occasionally hearing the harmony that comes out. Harmony is when you have different notes overlapping in just the right combination. Um, harmony can't happen if you only just have a melody line. God has arranged church in such a way that he wants harmony, not just a single melody line. He, he actually uh, arranges his church with all kinds of difference. Do we embrace that difference or do we despise that difference? In other words, do we look at the people who are different from, from us and say, oh, well, they're not like me, so I don't want to talk to them? Or say, wow, they're, they're not like me. I'd really love to get to know them. I want, I want to kind of be stretched in my relationships as, as, I, as I try and embrace people who I naturally wouldn't be drawn to. God has made us as, as a body with different parts, each with their own task. And uh, humility says, I recognise that I need the others in this church just as they need me. I'm not going to think of myself more highly or of them, them more highly, as, as it were, but rather realise God has arranged us just the way he wants us to be. Now, taken together, and, and we could do, I could have done a whole sermon just on those eight verses, uh, but I've moved fairly quickly through them because in those eight verses, it shows us just in a little glimpse of what authentic love looks like. And in these verses, I think Paul's focus is very much on the kind of love that ought to be shown within our church communities. He's talking to the church at Rome about how they should love one another. It's actually about love for Christian brothers and sisters. But Paul isn't going to leave it there because in the last part of the passage, the last five verses, he shows that true love is not just about loving, loving the brothers and the sisters. It's even loving our enemies, lo loving those who are outside our church, loving the world beyond uh, the doors of this church. The section begins with a prohibition. What we must not do is repay evil for evil. Now, that, that's not how our world works. That, that is how, how most of foreign policy works in, in this world. It's based on revenge and retaliation. Uh, you hit me, I'm justified in hitting you back. Uh, if you kill my kinsman, then I am justified in killing you, an eye for an eye and all of that. Jesus taught a radically countercultural idea, countercultural back then in the first century and just as countercultural now, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, turn the other cheek. Jesus not only said those things, of course, Jesus did it, didn't he? Think of Jesus on the cross, uh, scorned, mocked, beaten, and he didn't retaliate. And more than that, he prayed, Father, Forgive them. I'd love to tell you that we are in a season in the world where Christians are going to be loved and embraced and everybody's going to think we are great. I don't think that's the world in which we live. I think we are going to be into a season where we are increasingly mocked and scorned and it's so tempting to want to fight back. Um, 
there are so many uh, uh, stinging one-liners that I've got spinning around in my brain to, to crush the opposition and I've just got to bite my tongue because I think that is not how Jesus calls me to respond. Jesus is our model for how to respond when others treat us badly. We don't return evil for evil. Instead, we do good. We do such a measure of good that, as, as verse 17 goes on to say, we are doing right in the eyes of everyone. So it's not just enough to refrain from the negative act, I'm, I'm not going to swing the punch when I feel like it, we actually have a positive duty to act in the best interests of our enemies. What does that look like in practice? Well, Paul gives us three concrete ways to respond when our, our opponents come against us. And coincidentally, they all start with the letter L. Who would have thought that? A sermon outline with three L's. We need to live, we need to leave, and we need to love. Firstly, we need to, verse 18, live at peace with everyone. In order to live at peace, we have to forgive those who sin against us. As Jesus reminds us in the Lord's Prayer, uh, we must forgive others as the Lord has forgiven us. We mustn't be like the unforgiving servant in that parable in Matthew 18, who was forgiven the, the country-sized debt but will not forgive uh, the, the, the $100 debt that, that somebody else owes him. We need to forgive even when our enemies are still coming against us. We don't withhold forgiveness because people are undeserving. However, it is important to notice the caveat in this verse. Paul says to live at peace, but notice, if it is possible as far as it depends on you. In that verse, Paul is acknowledging that living at peace ultimately is two-sided. Or to put it another way, uh, there is a difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. Forgiveness is something that can just be one-sided. Reconciliation requires two parties. Forgiveness is primarily a transaction that takes place in your own heart. Uh, Jesus speaks of uh, forgiving your brother or sister from the heart. Forgiveness means letting go of the anger, letting go uh, of the hurt. It, it, it means saying, I no longer hold this against you. In fact, I want what is best for you. And you can do that, you can choose to forgive even when the other party has not repented. Even if, for example, the death of the other party makes uh, their repentance impossible. Forgiveness is different to reconciliation. Reconciliation actually does re require a repentance on behalf of the wrongdoer. Sometimes, even where there has been repentance, it's not always appropriate for there to be restoration of relationships. I'm just, this is not really from Romans 12, but it's important. Whenever I talk about forgiveness, I want to make this point. Think three different categories. Forgiveness, reconciliation, restoration. Uh, there, there, there are cases where even uh, some, sometimes all you can, the best you can have is forgiveness. Uh, you have let go of the, uh, the hurt in your own heart. You no longer want what is bad for that person. You want what is good. That's forgiveness. Reconciliation happens where the other person says, I have done the wrong thing. I, I, I repent. Please forgive me. And, and, and that 
completed, completed forgiveness cycle leads to reconciliation. Um, but there's a third step, which is restoration. And even when sometimes there is uh, reconciliation, it's not appropriate for there to be restoration. And I guess in an oblique way, I'm, I'm, I'm alluding to the circumstances of um, abuse, uh, domestic violence, sexual abuse or something like that. Uh, sometimes it's not appropriate uh, to expect a, um, a, a, the victim to be fully reconciled with an abuser, meaning to go back and, and live in restored relationships because the nature of the offence means that that's not possible. Now, that's, I need to say that, but, but because that sometimes people misunderstand uh, categories of forgiveness and, and we cheapen forgiveness by, by, by forcing people uh, to, uh, to, to, to reconciliation and restoration. But the principle is, as far as possible, as it depends on you, we should be seeking to live at peace with one another. That's reconciliation. Secondly... Uh, we need to leave. We need to, verse 19, leave room for God's wrath. Part of forgiveness is letting go of our need for vengeance. Most of the time, our desire for vengeance is driven by pride, uh, driven by sin, ultimately. I, I, I want to punish someone for what they have done to me. That's why it's sometimes really hard for us to let go because it feels like people are getting away with it. In verse 19, Paul reminds us that we can leave it to the Lord to see that justice is done. Now, in the next chapter of Romans, Paul is going to go on and develop one of the ways in which God sees that justice is done here on earth. It talks about the fact that God has established human authorities to ensure that a wrongdoer receives justice in this life. So it's entirely appropriate that we have police and a judicial system and, and their job is to see that justice is done impartially. It's not driven by my personal desire for revenge. It's driven by an impartial justice. But even if in this life the Christian doesn't get to see justice done against those who wrong us, we need to remember that ultimately God's justice will be done. And therefore, knowing that uh, the judge of all the earth will do right in the end means that we can leave room for God's wrath. Uh, we don't take revenge. Uh, we let God sort out justice. Thirdly, we need, and, and most importantly, we need to love. We need to show love by our actions. Verse 20, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. That's what it looks like when we don't repay evil for evil, actually going out of our way to help those who persecute us. Verse 21 is the summary of the whole. How do we engage with the world around us? Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That, I think, is the challenge before us for this moment in history. And guess what? It's been the challenge before the church for all, all of our history. Uh, God wants to, to love our world like he loves our world. This is how we should be engaging with the culture of our time, not going out there to fight fire with fire, not going out there to beat them at their own game, but rather let us commit ourselves to overcoming evil with good. At the start of the sermon, I quoted 1 Peter 2, verse 12, and I hope some of you realised that I left out the bit in the middle. Let me quote it again, but this time putting the, the, the verse in full. Live such good lives among the pagans 
that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits you. So 1 Peter is not promising that the world around us is going to love us. If we just love them, that they'll, they'll love us and embrace us. There is no promise here uh, that of, 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 a, of an easy ride. They will still accuse us of doing wrong. Uh, later in 1 Peter, he says, though they slander you, they'll be ashamed of their slander. It doesn't say they're going to stop slandering us. It just means that they're going to keep on doing it. But, but in a sense, uh, they know that their slander is baseless. No matter what happens, God wants us to keep living lives of love in response to his love, authentic love, loving even those who hate us. And if we do that, in the end, they will see our good deeds and they will glorify God on the day that he visits us. Let me finish by praying that God will enable us to do this thing that he calls us to do. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in your great love for us, you have given us what we don't deserve. Father, we pray that you would, by your spirit, help us to love people in that unnatural way, not to do what comes naturally, which is to repay evil for evil, but Father, help us to overcome evil with good. Help us to model such an authentic love to the world around us that in spite of themselves, uh, they will glorify you and come to you in humble repentance. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.